0: we're on day three of the Systems Oriented Training Collaborative, today I will be presenting as well as my colleague Elizabeth Mackey, um, our learning objectives. So on previous days we showed you the entire list of learning objectives, today we've just pulled out the ones that are most relevant to the material we're covering. So we have illustrate how different forces across the socio-ecological system can interact with and influence one another in ways that impact a person's overall well-being. Describe how in addition to FSP clients FSP providers are also impacted by different factors across the socio-ecological system and give examples of how FSP providers can intervene at community levels to help improve client outcomes so that's a lot of what we're talking about today. Finally, discover how clients can be more empowered to advocate for themselves when they're adversely impacted by different forces across the socio-ecological system. So the um, socio-ecological system and and the way of thinking about it, the socio-ecological model that was covered on day one, of this training with Dr. Bromley. So if you missed that and want to get more um, more of the spirit of systems oriented care, I encourage you to check it out. All right. And now I will shift it over to Elizabeth. Sure, thank you.
1: Um, hi everyone. I <clears throat> have probably <laughs> said a word or two on each day of this training. Uh, laughing along at something and not producing anything helpful, but I am going to be co-facilitating today. I am one of the uh, lead implementation specialists with the PMHP team. I am um, a social worker. Not sure what else to say. Chelsea, I feel like you didn't introduce yourself much. I guess we all we know who you are because you've been doing the introduction for the past couple of days, but all the same. Yeah,
0: I think I'm a little. Depleted on introducing
1: myself, Yeah, but my name's yeah. It I'm starts a to, worker. It starts to feel repetitive. <laughs> um, but you did share what your work background is, and you did a lot of care coordination work, and you worked in um, across systems, collaborating across systems. Um, let's see, what can I say about myself? My last job before I worked uh, with UCLA was actually running a health home care coordination program out of New York City. And that's something that sort of exists in LA, um, a little bit more just based out of payers like LA Care. But um, that was, yeah, a little bit more of my, my more sort of on the ground recent work experience. Prior to that, I worked in, hello Cat, um, uh, mental health supportive housing and uh, some other sort of uh, mobile uh, community-based mental health care settings. Okay. So that's my intro um let's see what do we want to talk about with integrated care the whole day i feel like today we will be talking about activities that you do sort of like things that you do in terms of uh services you provide and how you provide them and we're going to use a lot of terms that sound somewhat duplicative which we'll review in a few minutes um, but And we'll talk about this thing called integrated care, which I know I just want to acknowledge can sometimes feel like, well, this is a good idea, but is it really happening? Um, so for the instances, and we're going to watch a video in a, just a minute, um, that's going to review the, in, the continuum of integrated care and really look at it from, well, as we've spent the past couple days or at least uh, Thursday talking about Lisa and Larry talked about uh, teams and team functioning, team supervision. Now we're going to think about the team as a larger group of individuals, of care partners, all working together in collaboration, ideally, in a coordinated manner, ideally, to uh, serve your clients. So we're looking at the team as a broader, in a broader scope, and we want to think about how care is integrated in unique ways that might not look sort of like the... The most traditional, you know, behavioral healthcare integrated into primary care, for example, which I think is what a lot of people think of when they think of integrated care. So I guess that'll be sort of an odd way to introduce this, but we want to have you try and look at the ways today that you are practicing integrated care or coordinated care, and ways to think more creatively about how that can how that can occur in the most skillful, most efficient and effective manners. i just introduce the video first. We're gonna look at a, about a 10 minute video. Uh, it's from CBI, which is a Center for Practice Innovations out of New York. If you can go to the next slide, actually. I don't wanna give too much away. Gotta keep, gotta keep the content secret. So um, those of you uh, in FSP have, or just the, the service lines that we serve, you have access to accounts with the Center for Practice Innovations. And they are sort of like a a sibling to us, a much older sibling to us um, in terms of what we we do in terms of our uh, training and capacity building support for public mental health services. They do that in New York City, based out of Columbia University. So they have a lot of training content because they've been around a lot longer than us. They've actually done some learning collaboratives with us live recently. But these modules that we're going to show you today, uh, parts of and one later, we're going to show you an entire one, uh, you have access to these. It's a, it's a specifically curated set of trainings um, that you can access on your own time. Some of them are more interactive. Some are have someone, you know, sort of speaking with a PowerPoint as if it were a live training. Um, they're excellent. Uh, so if you have any questions about that, feel free to ping us in the chat or email us at any point. Um, But you can you can also just make your own login at any point for yourself or your teams and access these materials. Okay, I'm going to take over screen sharing and start with this video.
2: Hello, my name is Sapana Patel. I'm an assistant professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and the Center for Practice Innovations. And I'm here today to talk with you about team-based care. What I'd like to do today is to relate the importance of integrated care and the levels of integration. To understand the importance of team-based care in achieving integration, I'll review the principles of team-based care and illustrate how this happens in practice with some examples. So we start with the problem at hand. People with mental health and substance use disorders may die decades earlier than the average person. Recent data from several states has found that people with serious mental illness served by our public mental health system die, on average, 25 years earlier than that of the general population. There are multiple factors that contribute to this. Mostly it's from untreated and preventable illnesses like hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease and oftentimes these illnesses are aggravated by poor health habits, such as inadequate physical activity, poor nutrition, smoking, and substance abuse. There are also some psychiatric medications that may contribute to this risk, as well as some monitoring guidelines and treatment guidelines that have really been established to lower the risk, but they're not utilized in the way they should be in populations that have serious mental illness. In addition, there are barriers to primary care. This is often the site where most individuals get their healthcare needs met. Barriers to primary care coupled with challenges to navigating a really complex healthcare system have also been a major obstacle to care. Now you'll see on this slide, this has really given rise at the nationwide level to efforts to improve the system deliver comprehensive care for the whole person. The idea here is that you're achieving the triple aim. You're defragmenting care, leading to a better population health, enhanced patient experience, and a reduced cost of care. These are really the guiding principles of healthcare reform. So the proposed solution here is integrated care. What is integrated care? Integrated care is integration of mental health, substance use, and primary care services, which really produces the best outcomes and proves to be the most effective approach to caring for people with multiple chronic health care needs. Now, integrated care can happen within a variety of settings, a primary care setting, a behavioral health setting, as well as health homes, which by design have been set up to treat the whole person. In all of the cases, services are not just provided, but coordinated with other care delivered within that setting. It's important to note though, that although the focus is on the integration of services, there may be some cases in which this may or may not involve integration or merging of organizations and can happen at many levels. So on this slide here, you'll see a continuum of integration Conceptually, there have been three types of care along the continuum of integration, and they range in the type of supports or procedures that foster integrated care. In coordinated care, for example, there's collaboration and people operate as a team, but at a distance because they're in different settings and they engage in periodic communication. In contrast, in co-located care, the collaboration and communication among a team happens on-site and in-person, which leads to a more basic understanding of the cultures and the roles of the individual team members. In truly integrated care, communication happens at the individual team and shared electronic health record level. The roles and cultures of the team are blended. Now, this can really happen at several levels of integration. Each level of integration has a key element to it, and what you'll notice is that collaboration communication with other professional team members, as well as the consumer and family member, is a fundamental aspect of each level and is really considered essential. Communication ranges from periodically in coordinated care And an example of this may be a care manager working with a behavioral or primary care provider. In co-located care, communication is in person, given the physical proximity, all the way to integrated care, where individuals collaborate and communicate at all levels. Now, the key word I want to focus on is that really this means that at any level, it's important to have a real impact on process and outcome of care. It's essential for individuals to work on helping the person as part of a team. And this leads to the idea and concept of team-based care. Now, in the world of integration that surrounds us, team-based care is really seen as a core competency. It's a skill needed to accomplish the shared goals within and across settings to achieve coordinated, high-quality care. Team-based healthcare is the provision of health services to individuals, families, and their communities. This requires at least two health providers who work collaboratively with patients and their caregivers to the extent that's preferred by the patient. Now, in team-based care, a core skill is really the ability to function effectively as a member of an interprofessional team. Now, who are these team members? These are patient service representatives, nurses, behavioral health, primary care, and specialty care providers. It can be psychologists, psychiatrists, consumers, and family members. These are all members of part of the team. So what are some of the values that underlie team-based care? Honesty is really important, so really being transparent about your aims and the decisions and even the uncertainty and the mistakes that are involved in the care of an individual. Really being honest with your team members about your experience and caring. Creativity, really being open and excited about the possibility of tackling new or emerging problems in a creative way. Discipline is important as well. Team members need to carry out their roles and responsibilities with discipline, even when it seems inconvenient to do so. At the same time, seeking out and sharing new information to improve individual and team functioning, even when it's uncomfortable. So this means in sometimes admitting that you don't know something and learning from other professionals on the team who may have the knowledge and expertise that you don't, given your role and responsibility. Humility is important. Team members need to recognize the differences in their training and not believe that their training or their perspective is uniformly superior to others. You also want to recognize that we're all human and we all make mistakes. So a key value in working with a team is that each fellow team member can rely on each other to help and recognize and avert failures regardless of where they are in the hierarchy. Curiosity is important as well, reflecting upon the lessons learned in the daily course of activities, and again, really wanting to make a commitment to continuous quality improvement of their own work as well as the team as a whole. So let's move on to some of the principles of team-based care. Shared goals, what does this mean? The whole team, including the patient and family members, really want to be able to communicate and articulate clearly what the goals are for care, and these should really be understood by everyone. Clear roles are important, as we just talked about. Mutual trust, being honest and humble about your role and your competence as part of the team. Effective communication is really key in team-based care. I'll review a few ways in which this can be done in practice. Measurable processes and outcomes are also important. Your team really wants to track and monitor the outcomes of a person's health and mental health or the services that they're receiving for substance abuse through objective measures, measures that you can check on throughout the treatment process. So what does this look like in practice? I'll provide examples of team-based care in practice at each level of integration. In coordinated care, a telephone follow-up is an example of team-based care. In co-located care, case conferences or team huddles can happen, in addition to warm handoffs between providers. And in integrated care, this really highlights infrastructure support for team-based care within the shared electronic medical record. So in telephone follow-up, A team is not limited to only those people working within the same practice. Location, organizational affiliation, or particular roles don't define a team, and teams are brought together for a particular client at a particular time and agree to communicate and collaborate as clinically needed. So in the case of coordinated care, let's consider the example of a care manager who meets with a consumer and does some person-centered planning finds out about the person's health care and service needs. And once these needs are determined, the care manager will have the responsibility of communicating this information to providers. Now, this can be done by telephone. It can be done electronically and even virtually in some cases. The next example would be a team huddle. A team huddle can be done in as little as 10 minutes. Therefore, it can become a part of daily routine practice and can typically happen at the beginning of a day before care for a consumer starts. It includes all team members who equally share information relevant to their role about the case. Next, we'll see a video. It's an example of a team huddle from the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System.
1: We're getting introduced to this continuum of integrated care. And Chelsea, if you don't mind going back to your nice blue uh, slide with the continuum, thank you. Um, We're getting to see the continuum of integrated care, um, but what are sort of the themes that run throughout it? And does all of this apply, regardless of whether you're talking about your team, the FSP team, or if you work on a different team, I'll say FSP a lot as that's what this training series is sort of uh, based around. However, I know we've got folks from other teams here and other realms of practice, which is great um we've we've got the small team that works on fsp and then the larger team the all the care partners working together and sapana touched on in the video a couple of ways that that uh, collaboration and coordination of services can occur um i really appreciate that she discusses and mentions some of the values or the culture that make a team work well together those were honesty creativity discipline curiosity and humility and i think i mean a great great example of that today is we'll be talking about some chronic health conditions um neither chelsea or i are medical professionals, we are both social workers, so we cannot speak with any authority to any of that, and we'll speak with lots of humility and actually share some information from someone else who is a medical professional via a video, and hope that those that we have um, in the training today that might be medical professionals will chime in, and we can collaborate in this way, sort of mirroring um, or modeling how it might work with a team. Um, But that really that really gets me as a, as a value that would be great to integrate into any team and particularly when we're doing this really very challenging work, of uh, working with people with chronic conditions um, along with uh, mental illness and to have potentially complex or chaotic lives. Okay, so looking at this continuum of integrated care, we've got coordinated care, co-located care and fully integrated care. Wondering, and we can switch over to the poll, if that's okay, Sasha. Um, If when you look at these options, we're curious to understand, and a poll will pop up in just a moment. If you feel like your team, or maybe it's something larger than your team, maybe it's your program, or maybe it's your agency. uh, sort of fits into one of these. So where on the continuum does your team or agency fit? And we say team or agency because we know some of you are working in environments where you might have a lot of other services on site that are particularly accessible to you um, because of your larger agency. Some of you might have some really specific focus within your your team, your agency might be very small, you might serve specifically a subpopulation. it all might look different. So just curious to understand Uh, where you fall in there. And maybe you're not on the continuum at all. Maybe there's absolutely nothing integrated about your care, which that would be interesting to understand if we've got anyone who's uh, functioning in that way right now. All right, so we've got 46% of folks saying that they feel that their team or agency is functioning in a way that reflects integrated care. 21% co-located and 33% coordinated. Now, we're gonna be talking about care coordination for a while, we'll we'll be able to sort of elicit some examples from you at any point. And again, we always hope that you, you know, chime into the chat with your examples, with your questions and reflections. But if anyone wants to comment on uh, why they chose the answer that they did, um, well, we can, it doesn't have to be the second, but go ahead and type into the chat. um, And we can, I can sort of uh, speak allowed to what you've uh, input as we go through the rest of this content here. Um, so, a secondary question is, how does this impact your communication and collaboration with care partners? And this isn't a poll question. This is sort of uh, more of a, something to think on and maybe reflect on and share some, uh, some input around. How does that impact where you are in the continuum? How does this impact your communication and collaboration with care partners? So if you are integrated care, what does does communication with care partners look like? If you are co-located, if you are practicing just coordinated care, what does this look like for you? What are some examples? How is it different? Um, If you've worked in different teams or agencies and you can comment on the differences. Some of you may have had some experience working out of primary care clinics or hospitals or sites that have many, many disciplines of care, very accessible. Um, some of you may have worked strictly on outreach-based teams where there's no, really nothing other than just your team, um, and you're rarely on site. So communication can look really different based off of the, the physical environments we find ourselves in, and as Sapana was saying in the video, also how information is shared with integrated care if you have shared medical records, that's a huge barrier dealt with. Um, many of you may or may not experience that. Again. Depending on who you're affiliated with. So if anyone wants to share examples, please do. And I'm gonna move through these two a little bit quickly, just in this for the sake of time, Chelsea. Um, this image here is I like, I don't necessarily think that the content of it is the most useful. I like it for the structure of this tree. At the top, we've got models of care, and the ones that are not- notated here are, aren't necessarily the models of care that uh, you are practicing. These are actually primary care-based behavioral health and collaborative care, which is a specific um, uh, integrated care model. In the middle, we've got clinical pathways, and specifically, again, these are these are SBIRT, which is um, screening and brief intervention referral to treatment and medication assisted treatment and they're describing these as algorithms used to guide care to ensure that persons with specific conditions receive monitored and timely care so there could be a lot of different things that are used there perspectives are all of the different sort of schools of thought um, modalities uh, theories approaches frameworks etc that guide the care that's being provided so maybe the models look a little different than this example that that we that you're using Um, fsp is a very specific model of care Um, but it's it's kept in check by some clinical pathways and it is informed by a bunch of perspectives so i think it'd be a really interesting exercise to consider going through with your teams or your agencies and sort of filling this out with what what works what's what's going on for you what frameworks what approaches guide your work what keeps you clear that you're doing the work that you're setting out to do and what model does that inform? What model are you utilizing? Another, and these are just kind of more to, more just food for thought, things to help frame um, how we're thinking about uh, integrated care. This is the four quadrant model. I believe we get to credit SAMHSA for this, but we pulled this exact diagram from an article by Sharp. Here we've got a a quadrant where there's low and high physical needs and then low and high behavioral health needs. And we are sharing this to just give you another way to think of where do your clients fall and what is the work that you're doing. We would probably venture to say you all are working within quadrants two and four. Um, That's high behavioral health needs. And then you might have folks that are low or high physical health needs. Um, Low would be Quadrant 2 for physical health needs and they might be served in primary care and especially mental health settings. Quadrant 4 would be also served in primary care and probably specialty care at times um, other congregate or hospital-based care settings and especially mental health settings. So here's a slide with a ton of words on it and it's i think it's meant mostly as a a bit of a joke on how many words we can use to describe basically the same thing but try and really make them sound slightly different um in bold at the top we've got care coordination and it is bolded because we are going to mostly say care coordination uh, throughout the rest of today and because we just don't want to overly confuse uh the slight differences between care coordination, care management, case management and collaborative care. I will say just a little bit about the difference between these and I'll try to do my best because I feel like this is similar to the world of like secondary traumatic stress and vicarious trauma (laughs) where you can you can dig in the literature endlessly and find a million ways to sort of define them and it all sort of ends up being the same thing at the end of the day. Um, People could make arguments against that. I welcome them. But for this, for our purposes today, let's start at the bottom. Collaborative care is an evidence-based model. Uh, So it's a model of integrated care, usually based out of primary care settings and led by a PCP that has uh, behavioral care managers sort of integrated in that then will manage externally. Um, Those two will be the point people to manage basically everything around that individual's uh, care. Um, it's also hallmarked by the use of ongoing mental health assessments that are just specific metrics, like the PHQ-9, for example. Um, right. Focus on measurement-based treatment to target and population-based and accountable care. So that's not something necessarily that really occurs outside of primary care settings. It's not. It's not something you would you would really apply to field-based, uh, field and team-based care like the type of work you all do. Now the top three, I'm not even gonna read through these cause again, it's just a little bit tricky to differentiate but I think for today's purposes we wanna think about care coordination as it's defined here as an administrative process actually. Um, and I like, that, I like that phrasing, that facilitates integration of healthcare services and navigation through complex healthcare systems typically involving care across sites, providers and community resources. So the administrative process I really enjoy because a lot of the work of care coordination is, it feels administrative. It feels like sitting on hold, faxing, getting ROIs signed, um, collecting people together for conference calls, arranging, scheduling, um, multitasking, making good notes, making sure everyone else has those notes, integration into treatment plan. It's really a lot about documentation and communication. Um, and finding the most efficient and effective ways to do that. So let's skip the care management and case management piece. Um, Let's go to the next slide. All right, so yeah, how are we defining it for our purposes for FSP? Care coordination is the process by which FSP providers ensure that clients are accessing all the services they require by communicating with and between isolated services. It's the aspect of case or care management that deals with coordinating and advocating for services and service delivery on behalf of and in partnership with the client. So this is our constructed definition. Chelsea wrote this. I, What do you think? What does care coordination mean to you? I'm curious to hear if you all can drum up a definition that feels like what you're doing. What are you doing when you feel like you are coordinating care? What are some components? Or if you wanna give like a, a full sort of definition, that would be wonderful too. But what do you all think? And while we're waiting for a couple of answers on that, I'm realizing we skipped a poll. Sorry, I forgot to uh, initiate that one. So maybe in just a moment we could do that because I am, I am curious as to the answers from poll one. And you're saying it takes a village. <laughs> Great definition, much better than all these words. <laughs> all right, so it takes a village. And then the care coordination is the activity of getting that village to communicate and okay ensuring that our clients receive wraparound services excellent so looking at the full scope the full breadth uh, all the arenas of someone's needs and care and making sure um, wraparound is really occurring okay treatment team meetings comprised of various service providers the client, family, friends, all coming together to identify and work toward shared goals that are in line with the client's voice and choice. That's great. Um, always love the phrase voice and choice. Also big favorite of mine. Um, yeah. Okay. So we've got in here various service providers, the client, family, and friends. Wonderful thing to point out key care partners. We'll define it a little bit more in depth in a bit, but we're including people's social connections, their social supports, anyone in their life. That's key. All right. These are great, great definitions, great answers, great descriptions. Thank you so much. And I will hand it off to you, Chelsea. Thanks everyone. No worries.
0: Thanks so much. Awesome definitions. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was such a great introduction to care coordination and what it is and what we're talking about. Um, And I really appreciate everyone talking about the different ways that uh, you think about care coordination as far as your own responsibilities and also the the different uh, team members that you work with. So um, that's great to hear about and I relate to it from my experience too. I'm sure you can potentially answer this question, Um, but it's nice to think of it in this way, I think. Um, Why is care coordination needed? So, um, and, and why is it needed specifically when it comes to providing mental health and wraparound services to people with serious mental illness? So, when we're thinking about the, why we need to do this care coordinating, um, there are kind of two things going on. We have systemic barriers that our clients face, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then um, we also can look at those in a different way and think about social determinants of health and how that impacts our clients' lives and their well being. Um, so social determinants of health are aspects of one's life that contribute to your overall health. Um, it's helpful for me to think about it in these categories, like the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, put together. This is from their website, Healthy People 2030. Um, the five categories are healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and built environment, social and community context, economic stability. And education access and quality. So, when you think about your FSP clients or other clients, if you're not with FSP, how are your clients affected by these different categories? How is their health or potential health affected by these? I'll give one example and then I would love to hear from you. So, if I'm looking at the healthcare access and quality category, um, I, you know, I consider mental health as part of overall health care, right? So, so when we think specifically about, we can think specifically about barriers that our clients face in receiving mental health services, um, some documented barriers, they're not listed on the slide, but in the references, you can find this article by Mungeli et al. from 2020. Um, they're documented Um, there are documented barriers that folks face when trying to seek mental health services, including lack of insurance. I know I've had clients that even though insurance is pretty available for most people these days, still don't have insurance somehow, you know, people slip through the cracks. Um, There also might be uh, unequal access to evidence-based practices. So, I, what I think about is I worked in San Francisco before I moved to Los Angeles and I worked in the city and then, in another time I worked in Antioch, which is about 30 miles away. Um, And the difference in resources and the quality of resources and um, the number of resources available was so different. And I can only imagine how that is in Los Angeles between all the different spas, Right. Not everyone has the same access to the same quality of care. Um, and then, of course, some other documented barriers that clients face in accessing mental health services are um, stigma. So it might be their own stigma, not wanting to reach out for mental health services, not wanting to be receive a diagnosis, those kinds of things. Um, maybe... Other other stigma that has come up that might be related to culture or um, religion that might prevent someone from wanting to participate in mental health services. Um, And then another barrier would be mental health workforce shortages. I'm sure if there are supervisors on this call or managers, it can be hard to hire people and keep people in the mental health field because it's very hard work. It takes a lot to do this work. So um, that also can be a barrier for someone to access care if your clinic is short-staffed, right? So um, that's an example of just this healthcare access and quality category. Now I'm hoping that we can just think about another, one other category and then we'll move on. Um, And so I'm wondering for the, for instance, the the second one, neighborhood and built environment. What might be going on in your client's neighborhood or immediate environment that's contributing to their health? What, what do you need to be kind of looking out for thinking about? Crime. Yes. All right. That's one thing. Mm hmm. So what is the crime looking like in the area? How? What is the risk of violence? You know how much violence is happening? Safety concerns, Jessica, yes. What else might be going on in someone's neighborhood? Think about different resources. Ah, lack of public transportation. So when I think of my example from the Bay Area, San Francisco, great public transportation, Antioch, terrible. And that's just, that changes everything for people, right? That's a great example. What's another thing? in your neighborhood or built environment that might um, impact your health. Food deserts, that is one of the things I had in mind, definitely, right? If there's not access to nutritious food, that can certainly have an impact on someone's physical health. We all know this, right? Even if we're not medical professionals, we know that eating nutritious food, that's going to have a positive impact on our health. Poverty, availability of housing. Elizabeth, thanks for that one. Yes, if your neighborhood doesn't have house uh, or your neighborhood or area doesn't have a lot of housing available, if you don't have housing, that also impacts your health. Um, I have a couple private private mess- or direct messages. Um, one, mental illness or substance abuse. So yeah, neighborhood, built environment. So if you think, Someone who lives in Skid Row, there's a lot of those things happening, right? While it might not be happening in other areas quite as much. Or if I think about like the Tenderloin in San Francisco, where there's a lot of open drug use. And that's certainly something that can affect clients in different ways. Um, and then toxic chemical exposure such as hazardous chemicals. Yeah, definitely pollution. Um, I think of Flint, Michigan, and their water situation with the lead in the water that still hasn't been repaired completely. And so you guys get it. You're so aware of all of these things. And we can think about social determinants of health in each of these categories. But I don't wanna I don't wanna take over the whole training with that. We could go on forever, I think, but I What I hope that we can agree is that there are opportunities to mitigate barriers. Oh, I have to mention this comment, though, lack of Wi-Fi accessibility. Yes, it's 2021. You don't have Wi-Fi. How are you going to apply for a job or, you know, like we need the Internet? So and things like that, I take for granted that. I don't really necessarily think about that right off the top of my head. So it's really important to consider these things. All right, so we've started to talk about the barriers our clients face. How do these similar barriers impact providers, impact our work with our clients? Well, for one thing, we can't know everything at all times. We are not the internet. Um, We have a limitation on how much data we can store in our brains. So um, when I talk about gaps in knowledge, I'm talking about not having prior knowledge about medical conditions. You know, you have a client, they have this medical condition you haven't heard of before. You you have to educate yourself, right? We just have to learn on our feet often. Um, It could also be changing services in your region. Things change quickly. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. Maybe you've moved from one region to another. and then cultural differences also, people have gaps in knowledge, right? We, we we're trying to move from cultural competence to cultural humility and um, understanding that we don't know what we don't know and it's okay to, uh, it's okay to admit that and, and let other people educate us um, about what we don't know. Another way that these, barriers impact our the dynamics with our clients is that we have this inherent power dynamic because of the systems that we work within um, so you being a provider and the your client being a client there's just a power in there you know you you can be kind of a gatekeeper if um, if you choose to do it that way um, they need you in a way. Um, And so what we're trying to do in order to address this is be recovery-oriented and person-centered and supporting our clients' autonomy to try to tip those skills back, to try to rebalance that power dynamic and let our clients lead their own treatment. Um, Another barrier can be bureaucracy or how I have it here, chain of command. We have to work within policy restrictions uh, of our or policy constrictions in our organizations that sometimes differ with our own values, for instance, you might be harm reduction focused and you really value that and you work in an organization that um, has a a zero tolerance policy for substance use right that is That's kind of a a tricky situation to be in. Um, And then the other thing is, say we're trying to cross a hierarchy. So we're trying to coordinate care with a client's psychiatrist and we cannot get a hold of them on the phone. That is also, how, how do we find them? Do we have to go through maybe their assistant, their nurse? We kind of have to figure out these different ways of communicating in order to address these barriers. because. Psychiatrists don't always call case managers back. Doctors don't always call case managers back. Um, They're busy. They have a lot of clients um, and it's understandable and we need to be persistent and creative in our thinking. All right. And then we've already talked about isolated, inaccessible services based on region um, or even neighborhood. And finally, so that last point, witnessing negative impacts of system barriers on clients can impact our relationship to our work and our mental health overall. Um, Elizabeth earlier was uh, uh, mentioning the, you know, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, um, secondary trauma, you know, there are a lot of different words that we use and they have nuance, you know, all of these are a little bit different. We're not going to go into the nuance right now, Um, but this work affects us watching people not get what they need. That is, um, that's painful, right? So uh, we're impacted emotionally, sometimes spiritually, and that's, that's okay. We're human. All right. So that is the bad news, but the good news is that part of our purpose is to assist people in navigating their care so that these social determinants of health and systemic barriers have a reduced impact and our clients' client's well-being improves. Here are some examples of some ways that we do that. We communicate and collaborate with and between disjointed services to improve continuity of care because when continuity is there you have more eyes on the client you have the medical professionals eyes on them which is good. Um, when you become familiar with your clients interactions with their care partners so and when we're talking about care partners we're talking about anybody else that's caring for your clients so their doctors, their nurses their uh, their methadone clinic you know their their sister who sends them a check, Every six months, all these people um, so uh, when we're uh, like accompanying clients to their appointments or communicating on their behalf with their providers, um, we're getting familiar with our clients' experience, and maybe um, maybe that gives us the opportunity to validate uh, our yeah, validate our clients' experiences of marginalization and stigma, and with permission, advocate as needed. Um, And also help clients develop skills in self-advocacy. For access to care and nutritious food, And other, all the other resources we were mentioning earlier, we provide linkage. And, you know, that's a big thing in care coordination. And we can provide psychoeducation to clients and providers about employment and other meaningful roles. All right. So um, here are some arenas in which care coordination can occur. So, for instance, if you have a client who is in outpatient mental health, what, you know, other things might need to be coordinated. Um, can anyone think of an example? What would you need to coordinate with a client who's in outpatient mental health without knowing much about them? What are the, what are the opportunities for collaboration? So if your FSP client also sees a therapist and a psychiatrist, how can you help with care coordination? And maybe the answer is you communicate with those people, right? Um, Some other arenas would be primary specialty care, helping connect, um, helping ensure that communication is happening between a primary care provider and any other specialist that's involved in that person's care. Um, hospitalization requires a lot of coordination, lots of moving parts going on when people are getting discharged, especially, um, substance use, uh, you know, people have a lot of different needs around their substance use. So you have opportunities to collaborate with multiple partners in that same goes for housing benefits and entitlements. There's, um, there's pretty much, uh, tons of arenas where you can provide care coordination and often care coordination includes a lot of these things. So um, and we can't forget meaningful activities, roles, Um, you know, supporting a client in connecting to a productive role like a job or volunteering or supporting them in connecting to their spirituality through Accompanying them to a different church service until they find the right one. Um, these things are also care coordination because these things enhance someone's well being and improve, um, maybe improve uh, self management and um, mood symptoms, things like that. So, care coordination really uh, possible to do for every single client. Okay. So, how do we do it? Well, we've come up with a simplified way of thinking of the different aspects of care coordination, since, as you may have noticed so far in our training today, there's just endless resources, services, care partners that people need. Um, Instead, we thought we'd just have a a simplified approach that we could talk through and get our brains thinking more um, Flexibly and creatively. So, uh, the first one is so, the first step, as it is with all your clients, is to engage and assess. Um, so, conducting biopsychosocial assessments to identify client goals and objectives. So, that's helping your client identify what they want, what they need. Um, and then you use that to inform what you do and what your client does. Identifying key care partners for collaboration. Again, this is anybody who is uh, playing a part in your client's life, really. Um, And then communicating with care partners. How do we do that? We'll talk more about it. Advocating for client needs and desires, supporting client self management, and the final one, which covers everything else, which is figure it out as you go, which um, should probably be the tagline for. Uh, social work overall. Maybe other mental health fields too. All right, so uh, we'll just talk a bit about our biopsychosocial assessments and how they inform treatment plans. So what do we use assessments for? Um, I would love for you to tell me what you use your assessment for and I'll tell you what I think we use assessments for but please put it in the chat. Um, We use assessments to get to know our clients and we find out what their priorities are and what they are already working on and thinking about and what is important to them. Um, We find out what services, resources that they're already connected to uh, need to be reconnected with and maybe how they feel about those services. That's important information. Assessments also help us ascertain how clients feel about their gaps in care and whether they want assistance in closing those gaps. So client we might have a bunch of ideas about what we think clients need, and it's up to us to pull or elicit from our clients what it is that's on their their top priority list, because that's the most important place to start. So part of the assessment, you get the history. So you find out more about your client's past. So you might get access to records, um, their arrest records, or interaction with DCFS, medical records, things like that. To better understand our clients' unique situations, goals, and needs. Exactly. All of our clients are individuals with an individual constellation of needs and um resources and it's important to be able to get yes, um I got a, another direct message. Assessment is client specific. Exactly. We're focusing on our clients as an individual and figuring out what where what's needed, what's where are the gaps. So What do assessments have to do? And I'm sorry, this doesn't quite match what's on the slide. I will go over that as well. Um, But what do assessments have to do with care coordination? Okay, well, I'll give you the answer. If they have medical needs, right? So if you don't ask, you won't know. So we use the assessment to find out what their needs are, including medical needs and all the other ones. We identify gaps in care and explore how the clients feel about them. Um, And if they, if they will accept help in reconnecting or connecting to new things. And I, I, you know, I think I've really made this point over and over again, but um, I think assessments really help you focus or can help you focus on your clients wishes, their priorities, their motivations and their goals. So um, on here, I just kind of put a shortcut way that I think about assessments and treatment plans. Um, So for clients to achieve goals you've collaboratively agreed upon, meaning you're helping the client figure out their goal and collaborating on it, Um, there are two types of actions that occur once you've of get started with the treatment plan right you have the interventions which is what you're doing as the provider and then the objectives which is what you hope the client you hope for the client to do Um, so care coordination is effective when both of these are taking place so you're coordinating services and resources making appointments submitting enrollment paperwork all of that administrative kind of work elizabeth was mentioning before and then the goal being that your client attends and participates in the service and resources that you have helped them access. So it's it's really teamwork together. The next step is identifying. So you've done your assessment, and you know you're you've figured out what what the needs some of the needs are, um, and now you have to identify key care partners. So. Here we have, uh, Elizabeth made this awesome slide, I love it. So we have who? Providers, family, social supports, insurance, pharmacy, care partners can be, as I said earlier, anyone who is um, participating in your client's life. Um, So we wanna get the professionals um, that you can collaborate with and then also the social supports. And so when once we have identified who the care partners are, you, there's two things that we have to figure out. First, what do we need to do in order to be able to talk to this person? And also how do we contact them? How do we get in touch? Um, and so we will go over these in a little bit more depth later, but you know, uh, the main thing to remember is that when you're working um, with a client under, you know, you're guided by HIPAA and CFR part two. So in order to share information, we have to get releases of information. Uh, you want to get permission from your client. I mean, the written permission is good, but you really want that it to be meaningful, like they understand um, and they are giving you that permission, um, not just signing a document. <laughs> so that, that's helpful. Um, and then let's see, what else did I wanna say about this? So I think it's important to tease out who are the existing care partners and then um, what you can discuss and how to discuss this And then think about who is missing from the picture, what care partners need to be um, added to the mix. Um, And one thing to think about when you are contemplating communication with care partners is if your clients experience paranoia or delusions or have uh, trauma histories, so many folks do, or maybe have um, identities that um, like, maybe trans disclosure, things like that, that um, if any of these things are happening with clients, we wanna be aware of the impact that sharing information can have with care partners. So for instance, I've had clients who had um, delusions and um, my speaking with their provider um, wasn't very good for our therapeutic alliance. Um, I I had to do it anyway, you know. Sometimes you have to anyway. Um, but it it can it can cause stress for clients who maybe aren't perceiving reality in the same way we are. Okay, so we want to do another poll because we want to find out. Is getting a primary care provider, seems kind of uh, a little bit random, but we'll get into it. Okay, is your program protocol to obtain a PCP for clients? So as part of your kind of, I don't know, when you trained in your job, when you talk about the methods that you use with your colleagues, is this an expectation? We are curious to know. And so we have some, we have different options. We have yes, ASAP. So it's, you know, it's a priority. And then we have, yes, it's suggested. So maybe not as prioritized, but you acknowledge it as an important factor. And then no would be that it's not, you know, it's just not on the priority list and unsure would be, you don't know. (laughs) All right, so we've got 34 people responded so far. Okay, so it, is it in your program protocol to obtain a PCP? 21% said yes, and it's a priority. 37% said yes, it's suggested. Uh, 24% said no, and 18% said unsure. Um. So what I wanna know is, what do you think is, uh, or do you, I guess, what do you think is? How do you feel about that? Should it be prioritized? How important do you find this, um, this process of finding a PCP for your client? The reason I'm bringing this up is because I have, uh. It, it wasn't, in my previous job, I don't think it was explicit. It was kind of, you know, yes, it's suggested, um, but I made it a priority in, in my own practice with my clients to make sure they were connected to primary care provider as like one of the first things. It says, depends on if they don't already have one. Great. So you're, you're doing that um, recon, finding out where the connections are already. Ah, and as important as the client finds it, but I encourage it. Love that. Exactly. That is what we're going for. Awesome. All right. So we have assessed and we have identified the key care partners with our client's help. And now we have to communicate with them. So we need to consider the barriers to communicating with care partners. Like I mentioned before, maybe you're trying to reach a client's doctor, you haven't received a callback despite multiple attempts. Um, Some creative strategies I've used have been to call, contact multiple providers at an agency. So, you know, I had one client who had a psychiatrist at the methadone clinic, and I could never reach him until I figured out that I could only reach him at one location through his assistant who was on maternity leave. So it was the backup assistant, right? So just um, being creative in your approach, kind of figuring out how to make things happen uh, in different ways, kind of goes with figuring out as you go. Um, it's a good idea to familiarize yourself with like, You might have a memorandum of understanding your agency with another agency. So if you do, it's important or it's helpful to know about that because it can affect whether you need um, releases across agencies, departments, sectors. Um, I would always lean towards getting written permission um, rather than not, (laughs) but if you are Uh, wondering if there are official relationships between your agency and others that um, contributes to how easy it is to share information, you can talk to your um, department about that. Your your agency should be able to tell you about that. All right, and then we can systemize with processes like transition of care and accompany. So for instance, if you are going with your client to the doctor, um, you can bring your business card and give it to the doctor in the room, um, ask them for their business card. Um, and then that kind of opens the gate to the communication. Um, you can also, um, like if, for transitions of care, if, um, Like if someone is transitioning perhaps from one FSP to another FSP, uh, doing warm handoffs, making sure that the care partners involved know exactly what is happening and when and how um, is important. And then the two things on the bottom are legal considerations, um, the HIPAA Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. I know this is not going to turn into a HIPAA training, don't worry, I know you probably have been to many of them, I know I have, um, but we will talk about it briefly because it is important. And then, um, then the other one is the 42 CFR part two, and that one's a little more confusing, so we'll talk about it for a second. The point we wanna make here is that HIPAA is not a barrier to care coordination, it just requires an extra step Um, of making sure your client is uh, willing for you to speak to others about them. You know, I I would want to give permission to anybody speaking about my private information. So as long as we are getting permission from clients, HIPAA does not have to be a barrier to care coordination. And it can be as simple as during your assessment. Once you've developed Enough rapport talking to your client about. I might need to contact other people if you want me to. Let's do all these forms right now and then upload them. Um, I always try to get them out of the way at the beginning. And then, of course, as needed, because you discovered new gaps and services that or new gaps in services that need to be filled. Okay, uh, you can just use this for reference later. All right. CFR uh, 42 CFR part two. So, this is the federal law protecting the privacy rights of people who seek treatment for substance use disorders from federally assisted programs. Um, This law might explain why it can feel difficult at times to collaborate and communicate with substance use treatment agencies um, like methadone, maybe inpatient treatment. Um, the important thing to remember here is that you can get permission from your client to collaborate, you just have to have specific written consent. So possibly a barrier, but um, there is a workaround. And it's to get your client engaged and, um, and get their permission. OK, so if we're comparing the two, um, both 42 CFR Part 2 and HIPAA protect patient privacy by regulating the way that patient information can be shared and disclosed. HIPAA applies to more types of information than um, 42 CFR part two. And then you could say that HIPAA tends to be less protective of patient privacy than part two. If you want more information, we have a link to uh, a great article that describes 42 CFR part two, and it is linked in our references. So look, uh, check that out for more information.
1: So let's touch on um, another step of care coordination. This is supporting client self-management. So what is that? Self-management would would be a little bit of what I was just talking about, um, where you are teaching the skills of what you are doing with an individual to them so that they might do that themselves. Um, And this could be kind of defined broadly or interpreted in different ways. I mean, you could really, you know, let's say if you were just looking at like um, mental health symptoms, for example, someone learning coping skills or engaging in like um, anything around like wellness self-management, that might be That might be relevant. Maybe it's, as I just mentioned, like time and calendar management, teaching those skills so someone can keep up with their appointments better, Um, learning when they can best uh, engage in services. Perhaps someone has a medication schedule or substance use, a tendency to use substances at a certain time that impedes their ability or becomes a barrier to them engaging in services in an ideal manner, things like that. Those are, these are all self-management skills. medication management, teaching that, handing that off. This, it, this is most basically what you can do with someone to ensure that you're um, teaching them to fish so they can manage themselves best on their own time. And it means systems of education, sort of like teaching them what what is going on with the systems, how they can best navigate them, and then the skills to navigate the systems. All right. Um, So some systemization there could be pre-visit conversations, doing lots of preparation, Um, and even if it needs to be repeated, based upon someone's sort of ability to learn or remember details. um, Please define scaffolding. Okay. Um, So scaffolding means... Okay, teaching, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, anyone who works with kids, scaffolding I think is like a parenting term, but I believe in this case, we want to use it to describe when you're teaching, let's say I teach Chelsea how to uh, go grocery shopping, and okay, this is a terrible example, hold on, let me find a better one, (laughs) I feel like scaffolding means starting with sort of like a, a, a smaller, more manageable example of a teaching objective, and then applying that to a larger, potentially more complex teaching objective. So doing something once with someone and then applying, building on that to apply, um, to have them apply that to a more complex example.
0: Chelsea, am I getting that right? Am I defining scaffolding well at all? I think that you're getting it right. Okay, great.
1: Um, Adaptations and problem solving, so... uh, thinking of creative ways to find workarounds or um, make something more workable for an individual. Let's see what else is on this slide that people could ask me about that I wouldn't necessarily know. <laughs> um, Chelsea, while I'm talking, if you wanna throw, if you wanna look up a definition of scaffolding, you can tell I didn't write this slide. And uh, throw it in the chat, I'd be most gracious and most grateful. On it. All right. And I let's see here, right. So we wanna focus with supporting client self-management. Also, uh, it's kind of like when to do what, helping them learn what are the skills and when they can, and how they can apply them and with whom. All right, instructional scaffolding is a process through which a teacher adds supports for students in order to enhance learning and aid in the mastery of tasks okay, so the teacher does this by systematically building on students' experiences and knowledge as they are learning new skills. So that's, I guess what I was getting at, just sort of starting with simple examples and then building on it to more complex, um, because it's always that sort of, I guess with any learning, we, we apply the knowledge we just learned to more and more complex tasks. But if we started with the most complex, we would be overwhelmed and not know what to do,
2: okay.
0: Next slide. May, may I jump in? I just had a sure. thought about scaffolding Elizabeth. Um, sure. I think what I like about it about this definition I just found on the internet but um, when a teacher adds support so I think when we're working with clients we're like adding in the scaffolding and helping them like get familiar with how to access the things using those supports and then eventually hopefully that scaffolding will remain and we won't have to be there. Yes, makes sense. Okay,
1: that makes sense. We're going to talk about advocacy. Um, so, with advocacy, I guess we this could be divided into a couple different areas. But stepping in and showing up. So showing up such a big piece of this. Often we need to be there in the room to ensure that uh, our clients' voices are heard in whatever their preferred method is, whether that is sharing on their behalf with their permission or trying to encourage space in the room, in the appointment, wherever, for to pause and have them vocalize what what their preferences are, what their uh, needs are, whatever it may be. those are our instances of showing up and being present and we can't we are not clones we are not ubiquitous it's difficult so part of the work of advocacy is also especially if you have uh, multiple people that you're working with is how to figure out how to be there at the right moments because you can't be everywhere usually for everyone Um, so really trying to prioritize the instances where someone will need your support We just talked about preparation conversations. Those can be really helpful for someone to self-advocate, but maybe some instances where they can't do that themselves, you will need to be there. Or if you're working uh, as a team, perhaps another member of the team. So when providing team-based care, considering who has the time and resources and skill set to best uh, support someone if they are in need of that um, with one of their key care partners. Um, Stepping in might have to do with Figuring out when sometimes the provider that someone's working with might not be a good fit for them. Um, we not every provider is going to be autonomy supportive, recovery oriented, person centered. Like we really want them to be. And sometimes there might be a need to to observe what's going on and determine whether that person is a good fit, whether whether there's an opportunity to do a little like, well maybe a little like cross disciplinary teaching or suggestion using some motivational interviewing, perhaps to try and get, let's say, it's a psychiatrist or a, a, just a medical doctor form. Because I guess we see that a good bit in this instance, where there's some judgment or some sort of like, you know, some communication of not respecting the individual's autonomy or preferences. Sometimes we could apply motivational interviewing even with that provider to try and get some some movement on their willingness to to get on board with um, supporting the client's autonomy. So here we have showing up in person um, as persistent and assertive follow-up, uh, <laughs> follow-up uh, tactics that you could use with less responsive providers as well, because everyone knows that happens too. We often have providers that we just can't reach. Um, so it's not about that they need a little education on a recovery-oriented approach, very uh, respectful education. Um, But then we just can't get in touch with them, Um, and we might need to either find someone else, but communicate that we're finding someone else, or just because there's no other option, track this person down. Um, Showing up in person, contacting multiple providers at an agency, using supervision to escalate issues when there is a communication breakdown, either by going up their chain of command or utilizing your own chain of command, Um, and yeah, using all means of contact necessary. I bet some of you have some incredible examples of creativity and persistence that have yielded something eventually, but sometimes it does take that. So shared and supported decision-making, there technically is, oh, sorry, I should say or supported decision-making. There technically is a difference, but for our purposes, we can kind of consider them the same. so just a couple definitions here, and then I'll get into some uh, some tools that you can use to uh, utilize this skill. So this is what we wanna do when we're engaging in an autonomy supportive approach, which is of course what all of our, what all of we're trying to teach, at least here at PMHP and we're hoping FSP is using is an autonomy supportive, really person-centered approach. Um, as, as Chelsea was speaking to earlier, Everything starts with engagement and assessment, getting to know what the individual's goals and priorities are, what their needs are. So they, they really, you know, they run the ship. They This is all about them. It's not about our, we have outcomes maybe that we need to meet, but it's not about what we necessarily want. So we've got to really follow their path um, and make sure because of all of the barriers um, and all of the reasons why, their path can be derailed or not fulfilled. Um, that Chelsea spoke to also earlier. All the systems barriers. We have to use a practice and a skill set to keep um, to keep them on that path. Keep everyone and their care partners on that path, so that perhaps the PCP or the other system that they are involved with doesn't derail that as much as we can. So shared or supported decision making is a way of doing that. Um, I'll just read through a little bit of definitions for those that can't see screens. So supported decision-making goes beyond informed consent by aiming to decrease the informational and power asymmetry between providers and consumers by increasing person's information and control over their own treatment. So again, power dynamics, there's always gonna be an uneven power dynamic between providers and clients. We have much more information about them than they do about us. So everything we can do to equalize that is really important. Um, it's gonna be really important for their recovery and for ethical practice. Um, and for providing information um, so that they can make a really informed decision about their care, when their care may be very, very complex as it often is for most of our folks. Um, this is a big piece of this. Uh, people must be adequately informed of their treatment options and each option's pros and cons The provider must be adequately informed of the person's values and attitudes. So I love that. They need to know the pros and cons so they can make an informed decision. And we need to kind of know their values and attitudes so we can provide informed care. Um, And in this little diagram here, we've got consumer knowledge feeding in, consumer knowledge and provider knowledge feeding into research, information, decision support and tools, dialogue, and that makes shared decision-making. So, like, um, I've shared this in prior training collaboratives that we've done, but I just love it so much. I don't know if anyone ever uses these, uh, but SAMHSA's got some really cool uh, tools online. You can find them at their—it's—I'm forgetting the what that acronym stands for. RASTACs for is Bringing Recovery Supports to Scale Technical Assistance Center Strategy. Wow, what an acronym. Anyway, SAMHSA has some supportive decision-making tools that aim to provide information to the client and also provide information to you, the provider, and helping to navigate some common areas uh, where people don't often get listened to, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, So medication-assisted treatment, areas that are complex and that clients don't get listened to around. Um, Let me clarify that antipsychotic medications, medication side effects, recovery planning. They have modules on all of these topics. Um, and they're interesting. They're, they're very interactive and they, they're meant to have you go through the actual modules with a client in tandem. So it's not something you would just sort of, um, you know, go through yourself. You would actually go through it together. Um, but you might learn something yourself if you did just review the materials and tools. And I really like how they frame language. They focus a lot on that and just really practical pragmatic understanding of pros and cons and information especially around these potentially um, stigmatized topics that may produce a lot of uh, fear or discomfort for our clients um, or where they've been given a lot of sort of directive messaging around them. Okay, all that making sense All right something else that's on that website I've just thrown these into a couple slides here if you want to advance. Also from SAMHSA, Um, these are some cool, like sort of conversation starters or ways of phrasing things that reflect shared or supported decision-making. So this is broken out into before decision-making, during, I guess, during decision making, decision time, and then after decision making, sort of ways you can phrase things to really emphasize sharing that power and the importance of um, informed choice. So before des- decision making, the skill might be recognizing that a need exists and or that a decision can be made around anything. And then an example a conversation starter might look like, this is a situation where you think about what is, where you can think about what is important to you and make a decision. So cool, so simple, but things like this will frame the conversation in a different way. And again, these can be applied to any aspect of someone's care, not just not just these sort of like broader, cross-collaborative, involving care partners, care coordination stuff, but just any aspect of someone's care from a, the initial engagement to um, assessment. Clients are making decisions the entire time. Um, Let's see, what else? Identifying ideas and expectations as a skill, and then a conversation starter might be, what are your ideas for dealing with this situation? Um, A skill might be finding out how the person wants you involved in the decision. An example conversation starter might be, is this a decision you want to make by yourself or do you want some help from me? From someone else, you said you wanted some help from me. Let's talk about what would be most useful. Okay, so pretty straightforward stuff, but Great for reference, um, I think sometimes in the interest of time, just getting things done, we may not always frame our how we speak about, again, pretty practical, pragmatic stuff in these ways, but this is where case and care management and care coordination can be very, very clinical. You are doing a lot of potentially healing work for someone by framing decision-making in this way, very specifically. And some more examples for during decision making. Let's see if I've got any that are cool in here. I want to note. Respecting the person's pace and preferences for your involvement. A conversation freezing might be you said you wanted to make this decision yourself. Let me know if and how I can help. I'd like to check in to see how it's going. Is that okay? A lot of this looks like motivational interviewing too. Um, another great question. Uh, Set of skills to rely on when navigating all of the tedium and decision making of care coordination okay so this image here isn't every care coordination step we just want to highlight a few pieces of it because some of them do sort of fit together in an interesting way so we've got shared decision making grinding on a gear that has integration and in treatment plan And then another gear that says communication and health information sharing with key care partners and that equals care coordination and by integration into the treatment plan we mean also the initial and ongoing uh biopsychosocial biopsychosocial assessment or other assessments and treatment plan updating all right so integration into treatment plan we're talking about all all the pieces and parts of assessment and treatment plan updating ongoing so what this is sort of attempting to visualize is that things change. They're just always in flux and they are always interrelated and impacting one another. So you might have a treatment plan from the get-go that then you engage in some shared decision-making around an um, uh, intervention or a treatment aspect. And then that gets communicated with uh, the key care partners. And maybe the results of that intervention get uh, communicated with key care partners. And then some, There's an outcome from that, that then impacts the treatment plan that then has to be revised again, that then also elicits another round of shared decision-making. So you could have this set of gears running on many different topics at any point in time, but it's just meant to visualize that this is sort of an ongoing, very iterative process, and that is care coordination. It's kind of working through the same um, uh, assessment, um, uh, communication, intervention, assessment, process on repeat endlessly. And another piece that really isn't included in there, but probably should be highlighted. Um, you know, we didn't go into great depth about all the forms of communication with key care partners. Um, I think care conferencing is a is a very unique skill um, how to how to host those. And we perhaps could do just an hour-long training at some point on what that can look like. Um, Pulling together like a a trans or multidisciplinary team outside of FSP, so the broader uh, set of key care partners, social supports, whomever. Um, But to go along with sort of in the vein of autonomy supportive care and or shared or supported decision making, the client should always have a seat at that table. Um, Truly, if if in this case, this uh, let's say we've got an integration into treatment plan and communication and health information sharing is occurring with key care partners, it really should ideally be shared with the client themselves too. So they need to be kind of like either um, uh, somehow CC'd, so to speak, on every sort of update to their treatment plan. They need to be a, a partner in their treatment plan. And if their care is being discussed at a greater level by a lot of people with a lot of power, they need to be in that room one way or another. Either their interests and preferences need to be sort of downloaded prior to that, or they need a, uh, to be there quite, quite literally on the phone or in the room, or there needs to be some sort of way that they can have, uh, have some sort of communication um, that's represented of their interests and then some sort of debriefing following so that's not in there so it should be communication and health information sharing with key care partners and the client righty. so figuring it out as you go this is our catch-all for be creative <laughs> um so be creative uh and uh, gosh what, what does it take to be creative in this work it takes it takes building networks it takes um Really, utilizing a team process and good supervision, learning, coming to trainings. It takes keeping yourself, you know, well managing your own well-being, so you have that sort of brain space and uh, function to be creative and to have that persistence um, and what it takes to problem solve in different ways with fresh, complex cases all the time, ever-changing, ever-changing clients. Um, this is always a moving target and the more you can do to keep yourself resourced and all the ways that I just mentioned, the better you will be able to do the work of care coordination. And everyone again has to sort of do this work. (laughs) Um, if we, we see, as Chelsea was mentioning earlier, things sort of fall apart when people don't do this work, you know, if a, if a call is made in to request a medication refill from a prescriber and it doesn't happen, and then someone's uh, symptoms increase because they're off their medication, the system is sort of broken down, right? Um, so all of the administrative burden, while it feels tedious often, is so incredibly important. And when people drop the ball, it often may be our role, um, if we are doing care coordination work, to pick up that ball for someone else um, and to keep it going, because we can't, it's not until um, our clients are at a great place in recovery where they don't need our services or where they, their self-management skills are incredibly strong, um, we can't necessarily expect them to do that. Uh, so this is, this is part of it. It's kind of uh to, <laughs> to, to keep um, patching up the gaps and patching up the holes and keep the ball rolling. So, Creative care coordination strategies include, as I mentioned, networking, psychoeducation, developing a shared approach. Um, there's so much to know about so many aspects of people's complex health and mental health. Um, developing your own efficiency and organization system to ensure timely follow-up. I don't know what you all use, if you use Outlook or paper calendars, you have whiteboards, what that looks like for you, but how you, how you manage um, timelines for follow-up as a team versus as individuals or whatever that looks like, documentation assessments, um, you just have to have a system and ideally a system that can be understood by other people on your team, um, record keeping wise and uh, communication styles that everyone is agreed upon as the, the collective method for um, communicating about cases. And that applies to within your FSB team and the larger care team, uh, that larger integrated care team. Case management is clinical, again, and multitasking. Uh, We all know you're all octopi and doing a million things at any time, any given time. Keep it up, it's hard work. Really wanna acknowledge how tough that is. All right, so what creative strategies do you all use? It could be about any piece of this. Um, You could elaborate on any of those bullets you see on the screen. active listening, yes. So when you're active listening, you are, it's a twofer. You're helping the client feel heard and validated and understood. So it's therapeutic. And you're also repeating things so that you can remember them too. So you're really absorbing what's going on and what the details are, a sense of humor. All right, Um, I got a private message here. I enjoy developing systems unique for our team with my staff for efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, challenge, you know, you can, there's a lot, technology can support us to do things and as we all have learned, of course, the past year and a half, technology can really support us to do um, work in distant environments and communicate effectively, remotely and provide care that way. Um, Of course, it comes with its challenges, but yeah. Thinking outside the box about care partners, right? So thinking, Who else could be involved here? And when we go through some case examples here soon, we can talk through that. Okay, working smarter, not harder, love it. Alrighty, all right. So we are switching gears a little bit directly, sorry, a bit abruptly. Um, um, So we're gonna talk about chronic health conditions. This is another CPI video. Uh, This one will cover some specific sort of the linkage between uh, people living with um, SMI and medications they might take and common conditions that they will have. So it should seem familiar to you. It might go into a little more depth than what you feel like you need to sort of know about, but I often have found that incredibly helpful because that has enabled me to sit in the room with medical providers and interpret what they're saying and take good notes,
0: even if it didn't
1: mean that I was really the appropriate person to communicate that forward uh, to anyone else, like ex- describe everything to my client, It still meant that I understood what was going on better. So hopefully this is helpful to you.
3: Hi, my name is Dr. Natalie Moyes and I'm an assistant professor at Columbia University Medical Center. I'm here today on behalf of the Center for Practice Innovations to talk about commonly seen primary care conditions and behavioral health. The primary learning objectives of this talk are to understand the relationship between mental health and chronic medical disease, to learn how to describe and diagnose three common health conditions, hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia, to learn how to manage these common health conditions, And finally, to understand the impact of cultural factors on risk and management of these conditions. People with serious mental illness die 10 to 25 years earlier than the rest of the population. Chronic medical conditions, along with unnatural deaths, such as suicides, are amongst the most common causes of mortality in patients with mental illness. In fact, nearly half of individuals with serious mental illnesses have at least one chronic illness severe enough to limit daily functioning people with mental illnesses are also more likely to have multiple physical disorders. So what is a chronic medical disease? Chronic medical diseases are long-term illnesses such as heart disease, cancer, and stroke that require long-term treatment. Chronic diseases are the most common, costly, and preventable of all health problems. In fact, 117 million that's almost one in two adults had one or more chronic health conditions in 2012 alone. They cause seven in 10 deaths each year in the US and account for most healthcare costs. According to the World Health Organization, the most common causes of premature death among individuals with severe mental illness are cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases such as obesity and high blood pressure, glucose, and or cholesterol, respiratory diseases such as chronic bronchitis, and emphysema, and infectious diseases, such as HIV and hepatitis. So why are individuals with mental illness more likely to develop chronic physical diseases? Experts posit that this is due to poor diet and exercise, often seen in individuals with mental illness, and also increased prevalence of substance use, such as smoking and alcohol. People with severe mental disorders are also likely to receive lower quality health and social care than the general population and coordination between primary and behavioral health care providers, which is why it's so important for behavioral health providers to learn about chronic disease management. For example, the prevalence of diabetes in people with schizophrenia is two to three times higher than the general population. This is in part due to lifestyle and health risk factors, but it's also due to unmonitored antipsychotic treatments, which can lead to weight gain. Newer second-generation antipsychotics, especially clozapine and olanzapine, tend to cause more problems related to metabolic syndrome, which usually manifests as obesity and type 2 diabetes. Low-potency first-generation antipsychotics and the second-generation antipsychotics, again, that's clozapine, olanzapine, and quetiapine, are associated with a higher risk of dyslipidemia, commonly known as high fats or cholesterol in the blood. In fact, Dyslipidemia is associated with several antipsychotic medications. So far, we've seen that having a mental health disorder is a risk factor for developing a chronic medical health condition. And those with chronic health and medical conditions are also more likely to develop mental illnesses. It is well known that those with severe mental illnesses may see their behavioral health provider more than their primary care provider. As such, routine screening and tracking for common medical conditions is equally critical in the behavioral health setting as the primary care setting, particularly when chronic conditions are a result of psychotropic medications, lifestyle choices, or substance use closely tied with one's mental illness. The behavioral health care setting may be an ideal location to not only screen and diagnose chronic medical conditions, but also an important location for prevention and even early treatment. We will focus on three common primary care conditions seen in behavioral health. Hypertension, which is defined as blood flowing through blood vessels at higher than normal pressures. Diabetes type 2, which results when blood glucose or sugar levels rise higher than normal and hyperlipidemia, or dyslipidemia, often used interchangeably, defined as abnormally elevated lipids or lipoproteins, i.e. fats, in the blood. These terms cover high cholesterol and high triglycerides as well. So in our first case, Mr. H is a 45-year-old Caucasian male with schizophrenia and lung disease due to years of smoking. He presents to your office for his monthly visit. His blood pressure is 151 over 92 millimeters Hg, which is considered high. He's very anxious and he's not currently on any medications for his blood pressure, but he's resistant to adding medications to his current psychotropic regimen. Does he need to start a medication for his high blood pressure? The answer is it depends. So we see cases like this often because high blood pressure is increasingly being diagnosed in the behavioral health setting. High blood pressure is a risk factor for stroke heart disease, and death. It's one of the leading preventable causes of premature death and cardiovascular disease and disparities in racial ethnic minorities. The key word here is preventable. Significant risk factors include older age, lifestyle habits, which include too much sodium or too little potassium, lack of physical activity, drinking too much alcohol, stress, being overweight or obese, and race ethnicity. For example, African-Americans are more likely to have high blood pressure. Hypertension contributes to eye disease, kidney disease, and end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis, as well as plaque buildup, which leads to heart attacks. So how does one diagnose hypertension? A normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80 millimeters Hg. Pre-hypertension is in the range of 120 to 139 over 80 to 89, and is an important stage to institute diet and lifestyle changes to prevent the progression to true hypertension. This stage is followed by stage one and stage two hypertension. Higher blood pressure leads to higher risk of death, heart disease, and stroke. For now, a blood pressure above 140 over 90 millimeters Hg is considered high blood pressure as seen in our case. However, The United States Preventative Services Task Force now recommends that we confirm high blood pressure with out-of-office testing. This can be done by giving a patient a prescription for a home blood pressure monitor that they can pick up at most pharmacies and is covered by most insurances, or referring them to something called a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring, which can also be done at home and is increasingly covered by insurance companies and provided at locations such as Columbia University Medical Center and easily found on hospital websites. The reason for this is that many patients may have high blood pressure in their doctor's office, but normal blood pressure's at home, so-called white coat hypertension. These patients actually don't need medications and diagnosing white coat hypertension prevents patients from needing to start a medication that they don't need. For the case of Mr. H, the next step would be referring him to check his blood pressure at home and alerting his primary care provider. Once you've established a diagnosis of high blood pressure, it's important to communicate with the primary care provider, given that treatment goals are constantly evolving. Right now, less than 140 over 90, in clinic is the ideal blood pressure, But goals may be as low as 130 or even 120 millimeters HD if you're at high risk for cardiovascular disease, such as a patient with a history of a heart attack. The mainstay of treatment includes diuretics, such as something called hydrochlorothiazide, usually used in African-Americans, classes called ACE inhibitors and ARBs, um, such as lisinopril, usually used in younger individuals and individuals with diabetes, because these classes of medications can prevent the development of kidney disease. And lastly, calcium channel blockers, such as amlodipine, also widely used. I mentioned all of these medications to demonstrate the large number of options available to patients with hypertension. If a patient is concerned about side effects, encourage him or her to discuss this with their primary care provider and consider another agent. Managing and coping with stress is also an important component of treating hypertension, which behavioral health providers can assist in. Finally, lifestyle modification should always be offered recommending a low-salt diet or exercise can substantially reduce a patient's blood pressure. The next case is Ms. G, a 66-year-old morbidly obese Hispanic female with major depressive disorder, hypertension, on a blood pressure medication called lisinopril, and hyperlipidemia, also known as high fats in the blood. She reports that she's been experiencing increased urination and tingling in her legs. She often misses her appointments with her primary care provider, And in addition to assessing and managing her depressive symptoms, what are your next steps? This patient should be screened for diabetes on routine labs. Diabetes type 2 occurs when the body's ability to produce or respond to insulin is impaired. It is the most common type of diabetes, accounting for about 95% of cases in adults, and can develop at any age. As of 2014, 29.1 million people in the United States, that's 9.3% of the population, had diabetes. More than one in four of them didn't even know they had the disease. You are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes if you're 45 years or older. In fact, diabetes affects one in four individuals over the age of 65. You have a family history of diabetes, are overweight or obese, or have certain health problems, such as high blood pressure. Common symptoms include urinating often, such as the case that we just presented, feeling very thirsty, extreme fatigue, blurry vision, cuts or bruises that are slow to heal, feeling very hungry, even though the person is eating, and tingling and pain and numbness in the hands or feet. However, some people with type 2 diabetes have symptoms so mild that they often go unnoticed. When managing diabetes, it's important to know your ABCs. In addition to monitoring the A1C, it's just as important to manage a person's blood pressure and cholesterol. Patients with diabetes require comprehensive management, and as such, coordination between behavioral health and the primary care provider is key. Because of the risk for heart disease and stroke, many patients with diabetes often need preventative medications such as aspirin and cholesterol-lowering medications. Symptoms such as dizziness, especially on diabetes medications, can be indicative of hypoglycemia or dangerously low sugars that can lead to death. Patients also develop nerve damage manifested as numbness in their legs and kidney disease that requires yearly screening. Making sure that a patient is seeing a podiatrist or eye doctor, as well as a dentist, is also important. Being aware that sexual problems may be due to vascular issues related to their diabetes should also be considered. So why is it important to know this as a behavioral care provider? It's because managing diabetes and preventing the sequela of diabetes is complex and often requires motivational strategies to ensure that patients are able to keep up with a constellation of preventative tasks. Having someone who understands where they're coming from is key to successful management. Because diabetes is such a complex disease, it's important to work not only with physicians, but also nurses, diabetes care managers, and nutritionists on reviewing diet, medication side effects, and adherence to medications. Behavioral care providers should feel free to send patients directly to nutritionists and alert primary care providers about concerns with adherence or side effects that patients may feel more comfortable bringing up to their behavioral care provider. When measuring A1Cs as part of prescribing antipsychotics, it's important that the goal be between 7 and 8%. Higher numbers may indicate non-adherence or a need to intensify the diabetes regimen. Dietary management, nutrition, and physical activity are also important components of diabetes care. The mainstay of treatment continues to be metformin because it also causes weight loss, which is key in those with type 2 diabetes related to obesity. Other oral agents include glipizide and genuvia. Many patients can now be managed with several oral agents, but over time, some patients become completely insulin resistant or are unable to produce insulin and end up requiring a regimen that includes insulin. There are several different types of insulin available. Each starts to work at a different speed and its effects last a different length of time. Overall, being able to identify the symptoms of diabetes and being familiar with everything that goes into managing diabetes and preventing the sequela of the disease can go a long way in supporting a diabetic patient with mental illness. The last case is Mr. L a 72-year-old African-American male with bipolar disorder, diabetes, and hypertension, who presents for his regularly scheduled visit. On routine labs ordered in the behavioral health clinic, you notice that his cholesterol levels are above the upper limit for your lab. Mr. L wants to know whether he should take a cholesterol-lowering agent he's heard about on the news. Hyperlipidemia or dyslipidemia is defined as having too many lipids or fats in the blood, Several types of fats exist, LDLs are sometimes called bad cholesterol, HDLs are called good cholesterol, triglycerides store unused calories and provide energy, and total cholesterol is used to build cells and certain hormones. Low HDLs and high LDLs, triglycerides and total cholesterol are linked to poor outcomes. Hyperlipidemia is one of the major controllable risk factors for coronary heart disease, heart attacks, and strokes. Smoking, high blood pressure, or diabetes increases one's risk of hyperlipidemia further. Levels are also affected by age, gender, family history, and diet. Many people don't know that their cholesterol is high because there are usually no symptoms. Patients with mental illness who have a diagnosis of diabetes and hyperlipidemia, like our patient Mr. L, are only 29% as likely to receive a cholesterol-lowering medication. A diet in low saturated fats and cholesterol can lower your LDL, or bad cholesterol. Learning to cook to lower cholesterol is also key, in addition to working to lose weight and increasing physical activity. These should be emphasized and supported by the behavioral health specialist so that these key messages are reinforced by both primary and behavioral health providers, particularly in patients who are on psychotropic agents that cause weight gain and hyperlipidemia. Treatment of hyperlipidemia is now based on something called ASCVD or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. Risk estimators are widely available online and prompt one to enter one's age demographics, and blood pressure. Patients 40 to 75 years old with diabetes like our patient or who have a 7.5% 10-year risk of developing cardiovascular disease based on the risk estimator, having existing cardiovascular disease or a markedly high LDL or bad cholesterol should be considered for treatment such as diet and or statins like atorvastatin. Statins are the most common treatment for hyperlipidemia and block the body's ability to make cholesterol. In the case of our patient, he has an indication for a statin regardless of his LDL level, but should only be prescribed a statin after carefully weighing the pros and cons and shared decision-making between the provider and the patient. Lifestyle changes should always be recommended. Now that you know a little bit more about what hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia are, you might be asking how often should patients be monitored for these? This table reflects the minimum frequency of assessments. More frequent monitoring may be appropriate in select patients based on underlying conditions and family history. In patients on second-generation antipsychotics, providers should consider monitoring blood pressure, glucose, lipids, and weight at baseline and at close intervals so that the chronic diseases can be monitored and prevented. Finally, several cultural considerations are warranted. There is an increased prevalence of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and other minority populations. Hypertension is a leading preventable cause of premature death and a major contributor to disparate burden of cardiovascular disease in racial ethnic minorities. Black men and women are much more likely to die from heart disease and stroke than whites. In fact, heart disease and stroke are amongst the largest determinants of inequality of life expectancy between whites and blacks. Values, beliefs, customs, and family patterns are a piece of the total information gathered regarding clients with chronic illnesses. These values and beliefs contribute to non-adherence with dietary recommendations and diabetes, for example, influence whether foods are used in celebration or comfort or are considered unclean or unhealthy, They contribute to misconceptions as well. For example, the belief that heavier physique is indicative of health. Understanding a person's cultural identity helps identify words and idioms when engaging individuals effectively. Meaningful and culturally relevant interventions can lead to successful behavior stability or change. In summary, chronic health diseases contribute to premature death in individuals with mental illness. It's important to know the numbers or the specific cutoffs for diagnosing and treating hypertension, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia, some of the most commonly found chronic physical health diseases in behavioral health settings. Taking the lead in guiding patients to make healthy changes can modify risk factors. In addition, it takes a team to develop and maintain a successful health program and behavioral health providers should seek to communicate with primary care providers often about chronic disease diagnosis and management. Encourage clients to keep an up-to-date record of all medication and use culturally relevant discussions and interventions. So that wraps up our discussion on commonly seen primary care conditions in behavioral health.
1: Right. so we'll spend just a few more minutes on chronic health conditions. Um, I hope you all found that video helpful. I know there's a lot in there. It's certainly worth um, making an account to watch some of that again. I really wanted to sort of freeze and screenshot some of those um, tables and pieces of information. Um, like I I couldn't retain all of it, but yeah, how great to understand um, uh, what some of the, if you're looking at potentially like labs on summaries from preventative care for someone or, or discharge paperwork from the hospital, just in case some sort of risk factor gets missed along the way, you might be able to interpret it and ask the question to see, has that person been seen recently by NMD and do they need to? Um, also great for figuring out of schedules for follow-up. Um, yeah, to understand what medications, if you have someone on antipsychotics, that that is gonna potentially put them at risk for some of these chronic conditions. And also, yeah, it's, it's a sad reality that um, SMI, um, can increase the risk for chronic health conditions and vice versa, it goes both ways. Um, so we, it's this is why there's such an impetus for us to uh, engage around chronic health conditions when we're providing um, behavioral health care. All right, um, this is a little hard to see, but just to point out a couple, the, these are physical diseases with increased frequency and folks with SMI, we cover it, if you wanna look on the right here, um, the right column are the diseases, the left are the categories. We just covered most of these. A few of the others that have uh, very good evidence for risk, those are the two plus signs, include HIV and um, obesity, uh, hyperlipidemia, stroke, myocardial infarction, so a lot of the other uh, cardiovascular stuff we just learned about. But some of the others that we didn't touch on are obstetric complications, and some that there's not very good evidence, but there's good evidence include poor dental status, impaired lung function, sexual dysfunction, um, as the woman in the video just mentioned. Um, Let's see what others, tuberculosis. So it's not just these three huge uh, common chronic health conditions that can um, come up, but many others that people can be at risk for as well. Okay, so we just went through some of these chronic health conditions. Um, Here are some of the names of specialists that you might uh, refer someone to, or get a primary care doctor or other specialist to consider referring someone to, depending on what's going on with them. Um, so if someone has diabetes, they might need to see a number of providers. They might need to see more primarily a endocrinologist, a nutritionist, and a diabetes educator, but due to the sequelae related to diabetes, they might need to see an ophthalmologist for eye issues or a podiatrist Um, If they're experiencing neuropathy and need uh, foot care, just an example, but this is a little chart you can look through you have the slides accessible. So the video talked a good bit around um, lifestyle changes, right? Sort of diet, sleep, exercise. What can you possibly do to not, to to, to make it so someone doesn't have to go on a medication if that's possible, Um, because there's many reasons why people have trouble sticking to medications. Um, But here are some other sort of just like realms of health concerns that might arise for someone so these aren't just like lifestyle changes but potential concerns that might indicate there's an issue. So things that if someone it doesn't have, if they have a concern around that you there are these are some of the reasons the potential impacts to their health or functioning why you might want to suggest that they go have that concern evaluated so. Vision might impact their ability to uh, read or navigate the world. It might cause them to have headaches. Um, The assessments you might want to get them involved with would be a vision exam, assessments for glaucoma, cataracts, or degenerative disease. Interventions might include medication or corrective lenses. And the impact of the intervention would be improved sight or ability to read or navigate. So there are examples for all of these. I'll just talk through them real quick. Um, Let's see. Is there... Dental is a great one, actually. Um, Dental pain or infection, dental infections, can be uh, very risky, even life-threatening because it's so close to the brain. Um, So it can also impact someone's ability to eat comfortably. Um, So it might impact the foods that they are eating, the types of food they are eating, or if they are struggling to maintain a weight, um, that could be an issue as well. Assessment would be a dental exam. Interventions might include regular cleanings, dentures, or other or other, whatever that might be. Um, An impact of the intervention would be reduced risk of infection or pain, improved eating. For sleep, uh, we think about so much, mental health, hormone regulation, energy levels, wow, so critical. Um, Ability to cope with mental health symptoms, pain management, a sleep study can be a helpful uh, assessment that people can complete to determine what's going on with their sleep. Um, maybe they have sleep apnea, maybe something else is going on. Some interventions might include medication, sleep hygiene counseling, or a CPAP, which is a, a forced air apparatus. Um, so that can that can totally change someone's um, life and ability to be well. All right, I'll pause with those um so switching to a little different gear medication management strategies um well there's a number of reasons why medication management can be challenging and some suggestions or strategies that you can employ in working with clients to make that as easy as possible um simply obtaining medications delivery or picking up on behalf of a client accompanying and supporting that skill development and and supporting their ability to self-manage Organizing, that could be bubble packs or day-by-day, week pill organizers. Reminders for meds, that could be alarms on their phones or physical, you know, clock alarms. Um, using apps if they're app savvy and have a, a phone that operates that way. Um, soaring them in easy to see spots. Checking out contraindications and medication interactions. So this is something anytime a new med will come on board, I would try and learn everything I could about it just to be a bit of an armchair pharmacist. <laughs> but really to just, be able to communicate better um, with other providers who might've been involved in my client's care. Um, And there's some big hitters that need lab work ongoing, clozapine, lithium, and valproic acid. You wanna make sure someone has got some ability to have blood draws for those three. And yeah, we wanna still use psychoeducation and shared decision-making all along the way. Um, And then this is so quick to talk about all these things, but. Uh long-acting injectables are also another strategy that might work for someone um, needing psychotropic medications uh, in the form of antipsychotics to ensure that they get a continuous dose um, more easily. So just wrapping things up and talking about chronic health conditions, these are the steps you want to take. So they don't look that different, but I, I'm, I'm in the camp of establish a primary care provider no matter what. That's one area where I'm like, I don't, I don't care what you want, client. You're having a PCP. Just because once that's established, they don't have to go to them ongoing necessarily, but they're there. And that's better than ER utilization or urgent care utilization in some instances. Um, so supporting uh, client self-management, is something we wanna do ongoing. Accompanying client to appointments whether that be primary care specialty urgent or emergency visits supporting transitions from hospitals whether that's discharge planning or just getting um getting well discharge planning let's just call it that um really making sure you're cc'd on all steps of that process and are there to facilitate that um, transition and handoff navigating an advanced directive conversation with your client another wonderful one-hour training that we should do Um, And considering cultural elements relating to physical health care, including gender identity, race, and other aspects of someone's identity, uh, also a longer training. Okay, let's talk about Patrick. Sound good? Okay.
0: Sounds good. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right, so we are going to rapidly coordinate Patrick's care um, just for practice. All right, so I will read this out loud, and then we'll have some questions afterwards. All right, Patrick is a 53-year-old white cisgender man who was referred to your program after being hospitalized several times in the last few months due to mental health symptoms. Patrick lives in supportive housing, which is where you outreach him for assessment. You observe his immediate environment, noting that illicit trades are occurring directly outside the building entrance. His room is cluttered with discarded alcoholic beverage containers and the walls and floor are soiled and discolored. You notice needles on multiple surfaces and a cockroach scurry across the floor. Patrick is reclining in his bed when you arrive and has the door open. Patrick appears very thin and older than his age. He wears unwashed clothing that is too big and has poor hygiene. As you develop rapport, you learn that Patrick prefers direct communication and is very forthcoming about his drug use. He describes getting into a car accident as a teenager that messed up his back and knee, causing him lifelong chronic pain. He was prescribed opiate pain medication for many years. However, the opiate crisis resulted in his doctor discontinuing these drugs. He explained This made him turn back to heroin and that heroin both treats his chronic pain and his bipolar as he calls it. He says he doesn't like psych medication. When you ask him more about, oops, when you ask him more about his relationship to heroin, you identify that Patrick does not want to stop use. He's very clear about it. You inquire about Patrick's recent hospitalizations find out that he has been hospitalized both for his physical and mental health in the last few months, not just mental health. Patrick expresses willingness to accept services and tells you that his main priority is improving his mobility, which has deeply declined since his last hospitalization. He offers to show you where his legs are most hurting, and you observe wounds on his legs, which he explains are from injecting heroin. He points to his knee that was injured in the long ago car accident when he was a teenager, it appears somewhat swollen. And he says, I know that something's not right. So that's the setup. There's a lot going on with Patrick. And we want to hear from you. What additional assessment questions would you have for Patrick? What needs clarifying? And what I'm going to do, I'll put his, the narrative back up in case, because I'm a visual learner. I need to see it. So what additional questions would you have for Patrick to figure out where to start? Or are, what are the, what are things you notice that you would wanna ask more about? So what are the pros and cons of his drug use? So in this, in this situation, you've talked with him about drug use and he's very adamant um, that he does not plan on stopping. Um, Another question. uh, Does he have family support? Someone asked that. That's an excellent question. Why might knowing about family support be helpful? What would would knowing about his family do for care coordination? Harm reduction. Yes. Love to hear it. Harm reduction. The harm reduction model would be useful. So what... Well, the, okay. So we're getting into the interventions, but yes, we should talk about harm reduction for sure. Okay. is asking, what kind of housing is this? Is there on-site supportive case management? How often is he being seen by the treatment team? Evaluate immediate safety. When is the last time he ate? Oh, wonderful questions. So you're talking about his neighborhood built environment, right? Like, What's going on in his building? What's available there? What might be available out he potentially enlist people he trusts and can support him? Exactly. So asking about family support or friend support, you know, just looking for more people that might be able to help him because it seems like he has some needs. Family can help with accompanying them to appointments and other supportive needs. Yes, exactly. So family can step in and help sometimes. Not always. Our clients don't always have family nearby or have good relationships with family, but it's always worth it to to check. Um, Last time he had a physical or lab work completed. Wonderful. Yes. So we know he's in the hospital. We don't really know more about that because he's the one who told us. So we want to find out Oh my gosh. You, you, you all are amazing. I'm even losing track. Okay. Uh, family can help. What historical programs has he utilized? That's wonderful. So maybe he has, you know, what was his experience with, you know, different programs that he's been in and is there opportunity for reconnection or can you get more information about what works best for him. Um, we talked about getting a physical or lab work. Yes. Um, family contact and social support mentoring if, if, if optional. I was probably if available. Um, yeah, that's great. You know, mentoring, perhaps he could um, find someone in his community that could support him as a mentor type. Uh, Does he have a primary care doctor now? Good question. Enlist other team members to visit at various times of the week. I love that. Um, Especially as we consider the FSP transformation where um, caseloads might be changing a little bit. So instead of having an individual caseload, you might have a team caseload. Um, That's such a great, wonderful uh, suggestion so that more people are aware of of what's going on. And he has the opportunity to communicate with different providers and find maybe the one who he can be the most open with. Um, Let's see. Okay, has he visited a doctor? Oh, also with the enlisting other team members, then you can increase familiarity with him quicker where more people are going to see him. Um, and more people know what's going on, you can monitor him better. Um, Goals and observations. So you'd wanna ask him about his goals and his, what he sees. Ask him if he has a place that provides clean needles. Glad you picked up on that, yes. So making sure he has a place that has clean needles. Um, Also, maybe he needs a place to dispose of the needles too, right? Um, Does he need a cane or walker to help with his mobility? Ah, Yes, yes, he does. Good question. What needs are a priority to him now? Beautiful. That gave me goosebumps. I love it. Um, You all are amazing. Okay. So who needs to be involved? You all already answered this pretty much. We identified different people, um, his family. If you have any other ideas put it in the chat. We talked about his family. We talked about primary care. We talked about has he had any labs or blood work done. Um someone asked uh, wanted to know about his last meal when he last ate. So we're trying to figure out does he need a um does he need like a home delivered meal plan, something like that. Oh, and Elizabeth you said peers. So how How, why would you wanna incorporate peers? What makes you say that if you don't mind?
1: No, I get to use my voice. Um, Maybe peer support would be another form of support for him. Um, Someone who understands perhaps uh, why his priorities are his priorities um, around his uh, not wanting to take psych meds or um, stop his use or things like
0: that. Um, Fantastic. It can be uh, really helpful that when, you have your client and they are able to work with someone else who has lived experience. Like if you don't have that lived experience, you are, you know, not going to relate on the same level. But if you have a peer who has lived experience that might be similar to him, um, that connection, it might be a little bit easier for him to feel uh, trusting and um, develop rapport, right? Maybe with a peer, so bringing in peers. Social community, if possible, can help them greatly, search for that option. Yes, we're looking for social support, that's wonderful. Um, and what needs to happen to initiate contact with care partners? So what is the thing you need to get from the client in order to contact the care partners? You're on it. Yes. Release of info. Exactly. HIPAA CFR part two or 42 CFR part two. Yes. We need permission. Okay. Um, I'm going to, what should the worker do next? We covered a lot of different things. I don't think it's, well, um, the thing I would say about what the worker should do next is listening to the priorities. Uh, established by the client. Um, So Patrick was focused on his mobility. So maybe starting there, Um, that's what I would say. If you have other ideas, put them in the chat. Um, This is actually based on a client that I had um, up in San Francisco. Um, And so we probably need most of this time for evaluation. So I'm not gonna go into huge detail Um, but I did prioritize his goal of improved mobility during the assessment. So these are the steps that we listed a while ago in our presentation. So I prioritized his goal of improved mobility and kind of, um, that was kind of the frame for, okay. So we need to get you back into seeing your primary care provider. We need to look at your knee. We need to find out what's going on with your leg wounds, all of that stuff. And um, when he said something wasn't right, he was right. Uh, He had an infection and he ended up having endocarditis um, because he had old metal in his knee from that surgery and it got infected. So, um, you know, I, I use that example because he, our clients are the wisest uh, people on their own lives. And he knew that he needed extra help at that point. Um, and a care partner I want to mention is that his neighbor uh, and friend became his IHSS worker. So we found social support in his own building. Like he lived in the same building and we communicated me and the IHSS worker and his on-site case manager. manager, So there was a lot of communicating there. Um, So I think I'm going to end there. Elizabeth, if you have anything to chime in with. Let me know. But thank you all so much. You are wonderful, wonderful participants. Yeah, Chelsea, you
1: told me the story of that case. And I think what stood out to me is, again, the administrative labor of how many you know, instances of communicating um, priorities, records, et cetera, getting releases and with the numbers of people that you had involved and the persistence that you described that it took. Um, All the while, you know, if you just looked at the case at sort of like face value and said this person doesn't want to take psych meds and they don't want to change their substance use or, you know, are ambivalent around it or whatever Patrick was. I actually can't remember now that, you know, if you didn't think you you had anything to work on there because of that, nothing would have shifted. And because you prioritized his concern around his knee and mobility, you unlocked everything else. Um, So I think that's really cool. Okay.
2: Thank you all so
1: much. Yes, thanks everyone. This is great.